What you are listening to is just one part of a series created for the review of AP European history. If you're a student reviewing for your class or the AP exam, I suggest that you take notes. Perhaps you're a history buff and enjoy the subject matter. Either way, welcome and enjoy. If someone was to ask the question, what was the most destructive event in German history? You would not be at a loss to come up with plenty of options. And if we're looking at it through the eye or the lens of AP Euro, there's plenty to discuss. In the 1300s, you had the Black Death. The Black Death claimed about 30% of all the people in the infected areas across Europe, and certainly Germany was not excluded from this pestilence. Some historians have even placed that number closer to 50% of the population killed. 1914 and 1918, you could argue World War I, anywhere between 2 to 2.8 million Germans killed, although then the vast majority of these were military deaths of men fighting in foreign soil. 1939 and 1945, World War II, anywhere between 5.5 to perhaps upwards of 7 million Germans, both military and civilians killed or missing as a result of the war. And of course you have the Holocaust, the attempted eradication of the European Jews at the hands of the Nazis and their co-conspirators, resulting in the death of 6 million Jews and 4 million others, including but not limited to Slavs, Roma, gays, political prisoners, and to a lesser extent, Catholics and Jehovah Witnesses. And yet, when the same poll question was asked of Germans in the 1960s, none of these events made number one. Not the Black Death, not the First World War, not World War II, and not even the Holocaust. What did make number one? Which event ranked highest according to the German people? Perhaps the least known of all of these events, the most destructive of the European wars of religion, the Thirty Years' War. From 1618 to 1648, the Thirty Years' War resulted in the loss of one-fourth of the German population. Farmlands were so devastated for years that vicious and disturbing tales of cannibalism became commonplace. The destruction even allowed the Black Death back into Europe. Typhus, dysentery, and syphilis also ate away at the German people. Many of these stories, tales, and events became commonplace in the collective mind of the German people. And because the German people were often caught up in the middle of this conflict, the murder of innocent men, women, and children were never forgotten. And as historical periods passed, all future wars and conflicts would forever be judged upon the destruction in the upheaval of the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War was just one of many conflicts during this period known as the Wars of Religion. But what was it about this time period that remained so vivid in the minds of both Germans and others in Europe? How did Europe arrive to this point of conflict? 
What were the major conflicts fought during the wars of religion, and what sparked these conflicts, and what were their outcomes? Who were the major players in each of these wars, and what role did they play? And also, as a reoccurring question throughout this podcast, is it correct to call these conflicts true wars of religion? That is, was religion the main factor or cause for each of these wars? Or were perhaps politics and economics also factors? Let's take a look at some of the questions we'll be answering during this podcast. Number one, how did religious conflict in Europe evolve over the course of the second half of the 16th century? Number two, what caused the civil war between the Huguenots and the Catholics in France, and what was the outcome? Number three, how did politics shape the religious positions of the French leaders? What led to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and what did it achieve? Number four, how was Philip II able to dominate international politics for much of the later half of the 16th century. Number five, what were Philip II's successes and what were his failures? Number six, what role did Catholic and Protestant extremism play in the struggle for supremacy between England and Spain? Number seven, what led to the establishment of the Anglican Church in England? Why did Mary I fail? What was Elizabeth I's settlement and why was it difficult to impose on England? Who were Elizabeth I's detractors? and what were their criticisms? Number eight, what toll did the Thirty Years' War take on Germany? Number nine, why was the Thirty Years' War fought? Was politics or religion more important in determining the outcome of the war? What were the main terms of the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648? Number 10, why has the Thirty Years' War been called an outstanding example of European history of meaningless conflict? Is this true? Were the results worth the cost of the war? And number 11, Henry of Navarre, or Henry IV of France, Elizabeth I, and William of Orange were all politiques. What does this term mean, and why does it apply to these rulers? One major change that took place in the second half of the 16th century was a location where the majority of these conflicts would take place. In the first half of the 16th century, the location of the major religious conflicts took place mostly in Germany. However, with the arrival of the second half of the 16th century, those locations spread out between Germany, France, Scotland, England, the Netherlands, and even Spain. One of the reasons why this expansion took place was because the religious wars were no longer simply between Lutherans and Catholics. You now had multitudes of Protestant faiths that were looking to gain recognitions within nations, most notably the Calvinists and the Anabaptists. So no longer was the conflict between two religious groups, rather it had expanded between three, four, or sometimes even five main religious beliefs. Perhaps the greatest addition of religious beliefs to the conflict was that of Calvinism. Calvinism itself was equally dogmatic and very aggressive, and it served almost as a mirror image to that of the Catholic Church. Uh, they even and oftentimes came into conflict with Lutheranism. So although you might have two protesting faiths that stand against Catholicism or the early Christian church, the differences in the beliefs and the dogma between um, Calvinists and Protestants oftentimes even led to conflicts 
between these two religions, as we'll see eventually in the Thirty Years' War, where you'll have Lutherans perhaps actually standing with Catholics fighting against uh, Calvinists. Whereas the Calvinists were setting up a stronghold in the city of Geneva, Catholics as well um, were setting up their own stronghold as a result of the Counter-Reformation. Their stronghold was within the hierarchy of the church system. They began stressing open obedience to the Pope and his bishops. Uh, The hierarchy of the church and not the local church leaders were the ones that made the decisions for the Catholic Church. The religious trouble within the 16th century also bled into art. Uh, Catholic art mostly focused on the artistic style of Baroque. Uh, Baroque art was grandiose. It had three-dimensional display of raw energy. And it attempted to bring life to the Catholic Church, both figuratively through art, but also literally by bringing people back into the church. One of the biggest things that the Catholic Church lost was populations when the Lutherans came into existence, especially in central and northern parts of Germany in northern parts of Europe. So Baroque was a way of creating artwork that would engage, be full of energy, full of life. And when Catholics, or let's say former Catholics, would walk into a Catholic church at the time, or a Baroque-style church, the art would overwhelm them. It would be full of energy, full of romance. And I don't mean that in the romantic sense, but romance as in grandiose. Uh, it kind of reminds you of why you are a Catholic or you are a Christian um, in the first place. Um, so you, you walked into a church, a Baroque church, and you saw the glory, the, the grandeur of God. Uh, Peter Paul Rubens and John Lorenzo Bernini are two of the most important artists that contributed to the Baroque style. For the Lutherans and the Calvinists, however, their, their churches were often void of art. Um, it, their churches were subtle in their approach. The main focus was the pulpit, the pulpit in the main location where the preaching would go on. And this this really fell into their beliefs because as Luther had uh, stated before during the Lutheran revolt, his approach was sola scriptura, that the Bible alone, the word of God is all that you need in order to understand God. Well, if the pulpit is where the word is being preached, then the Bible, the, uh, the word of God is a central location within the church for all to adhere to, all to look at, all to listen to, not the grandeur of the church structure itself, not the facade and the artistic glory of the church, but the word of God on the inside of the church became much more important. Intellectuals also added their wisdom into the religious conflicts of the time period. You had a mixture of humanism and individualism and skepticism that all helped to create discussion and discourse during and on the religious conflicts. Uh, Intellectuals that are noted, mostly Sebastián Castileo, Michel de Montagne, and Valentin Weigel, all three of these men and others questioned the harsh dogmatic approach of religion and politics and try to preach more of an individualistic, a personal approach to question why these religious conflicts were taking place and what was the importance of the individual um, during this religious approach? Is it to, to question the, uh, to the church? Is it to question why the political advisors, why the kings uh, are taking the stance that they are in, in these, what clearly are very brutal times in Europe during these religious conflicts? Or should we perhaps take a moment to step aside, step back and question the approach, question the approach from the church, question the approach from the kings? 
And although the second half of the 16th century is best known for these religious wars that led to the slaughter of millions, and oftentimes we're talking about millions of innocent people caught up between two or three conflicting religions, uh, it was indeed a group known as the politiques that were most successful at creating compromise and toleration during these times of conflicts. So most successful of them were Elizabeth I of England. Uh, she took a very strong contrast to that of her half-sister, her older half-sister, Mary I of England, even Philip II of Spain and Oliver Cromwell. They were much more of the harsh religious dictatorship types that were so devoted to their religion that they refused any compromise. Whereas on the flip side, Elizabeth I, uh, and we'll, we'll note a little bit about her, but she was much more based on compromise. She wanted to make sure that religion did not divide but that religion could not necessarily unite, but there could be a sense of toleration and compromise between two religious sides through one central leader. The first war we're going to be looking at here is the French Wars of Religion. The first wave of Protestant persecutions in France took place in 1525. Uh, Francis I was captured by Charles V at the Battle of Pavia. The French government had hoped that their stance against Protestants in France might curry favor with Charles V, who was also an enemy of German Protestantism, and as a result, it ended up resulting in the release of Francis I. In October of 1535, a second wave of crackdowns took place when in Paris, anti-Catholic placards began to appear. So the Catholics uh, cracked down on the anti-Catholic propaganda. In 1540, the French government issued the Edict of Fontainebleau, which subjected French Protestants to the Inquisition. And in 1559, two major events occurred. Number one, the habsburg valois War ended with the Habsburg victory, and this signaled a shift in continental power from France to Spain. And additionally, France experienced a decline in political power due to two successive young leaders that took the throne, the first being the 15-year-old French King Francis II in 1559, and then his 11-year-old younger brother, Henry IX, in 1561. So these two events helped open the door for three of France's most powerful families to attempt to control France or the French, uh, the French King indirectly. And these three families were the Bourbon family, the montmorency Chatillon family who were both sympathetic to the Huguenots or to the Protestant cause, um, but they had underlining political reasons why they were attempting to control the French king, and the Guy family uh, who already held many military and church positions within the French kingdom. So all three of these French families are looking to curry favor, looking to work backdoor deals to get themselves deeper involved and entrenched within the royal family. If they are best buddies with the king in France, then perhaps they can whisper into the ear of uh, France, uh, Francis or Henry in order to have their families become more important, more dominant in the, the French structure of the French government. Well, why Calvinism in France? Why, what, what exactly drove many of the French nobles to Calvinism? Well, aristocrats and townspeople converted to Calvinism to seek obtaining or to take control of territorial independence and create a Calvinist section in France. Um, however, because two-fifths of the French nobility were Huguenot converts, their separation would politically decentralize France. It would make it more difficult politically 
for the French king to unify France and then control France. And then this would also eventually lead to themselves, this Calvinist section of France, to increase their independent power amongst the Huguenot nobility. Uh, much like Luther curried favor with the German state leaders in order to gain power and uh, predominance in with the Lutheran faith, Calvin sought power of the aristocrats in order to push Calvinism forward in France. And so the mixture of landed elites, the ones who owned the territory, and those who were in the military proved a powerful combination within France. Reflecting back upon the French crown, remember that we have a very young Charles IX who is taking over as king, but because he's so young, he can't simply take the crown and rule France. I mean, it'd be pretty crazy if a 15-year-old was running a country. So it was his mother, Catherine de' Medici, who became his regent. Uh, that means an administrator of the country until the king, or in this case, Charles, became um, of proper age to rule. That might be 18, it might be 20, it might be 22, or so on. Uh, Catherine attempted, while she was the regent of France, to take a middle ground in the religious conflict. In 1562, she issued the January Edict, which granted Protestants freedom to worship outside of towns, but however secretly within. Three months later, in March, the Duke of Guy set fire to a barn being used um, as a Calvinist church in Vassé. 63 Huguenots were killed. This massacre at Vassé was the opening event that began the French Wars of Religion, and it pitted the French crown, much under the control of the Guy family, versus that of the Bourbon family and the Huguenots. Evision... <clears throat> Envision, if you can, a seesaw that is made up of three major parts. At one end of the seesaw sits the Guy family. These are staunch Catholics, and they're highly influential with the king, the French king. On the other side of the seesaw sits the French Protestants, led by the Bourbon Prince de, uh, of Conde, as well as military advisors such as Admiral Gaspard de Cologne. At the middle of the swivel sits Catherine de' Medici. She's once again the regent of the young Charles IX. Catherine is attempting as best as she could to balance out the two sides. However, depending on how the seesaw shifted a bit, Catherine de' Medici would counter that movement in the opposite direction. So Catherine's one goal was the continued control, at least her, that of hers and her family's control of the monarch, so if the Guy family became too powerful, maybe started currying too much favor with the king, Catherine would start to counterbalance towards the Protestants. And if the Protestants then became too influential, Catherine began to lean in the opposite direction to support that of the Guy family. So on that note of the seesaw, by 1571, Catherine de Medici began to lean in the direction of the Huguenots. The Guy family had lost a lot of their influence with the king, and seeing the potential for financial and defensive alliances, Catherine de Medici allowed the Huguenot admiral Gaspard de Colonier to be admitted back into the French court. To solidify this new peace and union between Catholics and uh, Calvinists, or even the, the Huguenots, a marriage was planned.
King Charles IX had a younger sister named uh, Margaret, and she was her that was intended to wed the Protestant Henry of Navarre. Now, traditional Catholics in France and Spain and even the Pope were shocked at the proposal and condemned the marriage. How could a Catholic king allow his sister, a Catholic princess, to marry the Prince of Navarre, the Protestant Prince of Navarre? But the wedding did take place in a very traditional Catholic city, that of Paris, on August 18, 1572. And many prominent or high-level Protestants were, of course, invited. This is supposed to be a, a reconciliation and a peaceful union between Catholics and Protestants. So surely many of the Protestants were invited. After the wedding, an assassination attempt was taken on the Huguenot Admiral Gaspard de Colonier. And although he was only wounded... The Huguenots who were invited to Paris demanded answers. They want to know who took the shot. You know, could it have been perhaps the Guy family and the Catholics? Was the, the queen or perhaps the king involved in this? Why would you have a wedding and create this peaceful union and then have somebody perhaps snipe a shot at one of the high-level leaders of the Huguenots? So whether Catherine de' Medici was complicit in the assassination or perhaps she feared a violent Huguenot response, Catherine and Charles agreed to eliminate the Huguenots in Paris. On the night of August 23rd, the gates of Paris were closed. Armed citizens of Paris and the Swiss Guard began to massacre the Huguenots and other Protestants that were in Paris. Gaspard de Colonier was killed, as well as other high-ranking Protestants, and anywhere between 3,000 to 5,000 were killed in Paris. Days later, the number had jumped to almost 20,000 people who had lost their lives. The Prince of Conde, however, and the new son-in-law, Henry of Navarre, both of those guys were allowed to escape. And perhaps they were allowed to escape because if Catherine de' Medici was still viewing the seesaw approach and trying to balance out the power of the Guy family to the power of the um, Montmorency-Châtillon family or the Huguenots, then she would need somebody to remain alive. Plus, I mean, it's also her, her son-in-law. What, is she going to kill her son-in-law and make her daughter a, a, a widow? Uh, a, excuse me. Yeah, a widow you know, almost instantly after the, the marriage. So Colin was allowed to uh, survive as well as the son-in-law. The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, as it was called, because it took place on the patron saint day of St. Bartholomew's Day, um, and the consequent Catholic sieges on Huguenot cities such as La Rochelle, sparked the fourth war of the French wars of religion. After Charles IX, the new king, his younger brother, King Henry III, came into power, and he found himself quickly wedged between two forming unions, the Catholic League, or the alliance that would represent the Catholics on one side, and then on that of the other side of the Huguenots. And although the French wars of religion would wage on and off for the next 24 years, the king began to gain support from both moderate Catholics and Huguenots. So these politiques, as they were known, placed the survival of France above their respected religious creeds. So these are groups of people who are moderates. They are not the extremists on religious ends, both that of the Huguenots and that of Catholics. They see that France and the survival of France, as well as the power of the king, is maintained and created a balance in France. And despite the politiques' attempts to find middle ground, wars continued. Henry III, taking a page from his mother's political playbook, began to swing from one side of the conflict to the other. In 1576, the king granted the Huguenots civil and religious freedoms. 
But a year later, that peace was eliminate, uh, eliminated and the king joined the Guy family against the Huguenots. In 1588, the king attempted to defeat the political power of the Guy family in an unsuccessful battle. King Henry eventually had the Duke of Guy assassinated. In another shift of positioning, April of 1589 saw King Henry and his brother-in-law, Henry of Navarre, unite in an alliance against the Guy family. However, during that time, Henry III was assassinated by a Dominican friar, and this allowed his brother-in-law, Henry of Navarre, to become the new king, King Henry IV. The prospect of a Protestant French king shocked all Catholics, both in and out of France. However, Henry IV was very popular for his wit and his charm, and he converted to Catholicism. I believe it's even said that when he went to be crowned, that he said, Paris is worth a mass, meaning that if I could take over Paris and control France, yeah. I'll convert to Catholicism. We have to generally, sincerely ask the question, is Henry truly going to be becoming Catholic because he really believes in the conversion? And I think it's clear, no, he does not believe in the Catholic faith and that he's converting. But what he is doing is that he's concerned about being on the majority side. If the majority of French people are Catholic, he wants to be a Catholic king on the majority side. If he is a Protestant king, then the majority of the people in France might not appreciate him all that much. Um, during the time, because of the many years of war, and it took toll on, on France, um, when Henry arrived into power, uh, a lot of the French people were more concerned, especially the, the middle ground politiques, were more concerned with Henry's right to rule, because in the uh, grand scheme of things, he was next in line once his brother-in-law was killed to take over the crown due to a family uh, connection years earlier. Um, so his religious preference in the end of it really didn't have much bearing on it. And then by the time 1598 reigns in, peace is the end result. Remember what our reoccurring question is for the wars of religion. The reoccurring question was, were these wars truly about religion? Or perhaps were there any other factors that might have propelled, continued, or been main causes of the wars? And we're looking at the French wars of religion and asking the question, were the French wars of religion truly about religion? Well, what would your answer be? From what we looked at, clearly yes and no, that it wasn't just religion. There were other uh, parts, ideas, and concepts that took place, politics, as well. So not just simply religion, but politics. If you're looking at it from the position of the crown, the crown being Catholic, if we're looking at whether it's uh, Henry III, Charles IX, or their mother, Catherine de' Medici, the crown was most interested in keeping political power. So even though they're Catholic, they are using that seesaw vision, going back and forth between Protestants on one side, the Huguenots, versus that of Catholic families in France, to do what is most important for them, and that is to retain political power. So if we're looking at it through the lens of the Catholic French crown, clearly this is not a religious conflict. This is one of continuing political control of France. For the Guy family, as well as some of the Huguenots, many of them were interested in incurring favor with the king or, or getting favor, getting higher pos political uh, positions, powerful positions within the French crown. So even though the Guy family kept saying that they are kind of the, the family of Catholics, the, the main bastion 
uh, of Catholic beliefs in France, they're also interested in political power from the French crown. Same thing with the Huguenots. Even the Huguenots, although they were you know, very much interested in the, their religious convictions, they also saw themselves or saw the importance of politically liberating themselves from what they might call a tyrannical Catholic king, a king that was stopping them from completing their religious rights or believing in their religious beliefs. But also not to mention as well that whether you're um, Admiral Gaspar de Colonier, who's also currying favor as well as the Prince de Conde, um, they're also looking to get involved in the French crown and curry favor with them for their own political positions as well. Let's take a moment to move away from the French wars of religion and focus on the second conflict, that being the Dutch Revolt. And although we are looking at the Dutch Revolt, let's take a moment to look at Spain, because Spain is the nation that dominated or controlled the area of what would become later known as Holland or the Netherlands. Now, Spanish ability to dominate international politics for much of the later half of the 16th century was based on four pillars. The first pillar being leadership. The leader of Spain during this time, his name was Philip II. He was the son of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Philip was a very pious Catholic, and he had a very grandiose religious and political aspiration. You might think of him as a man who was attempting to create the United States of Europe, or at least the United States of Catholic Europe, and with him as the king. So not only would he spread his pious religion, Catholicism around Europe again, perhaps get rid of Calvinism and Lutheranism, but also the political aspiration of himself being crowned king of Catholic Europe. The second pillar is wealth. Spain profited off of its colonies in Latin America, and regular arrivals of bullion from Colombia, Bolivia, Mexico allowed Philip to pay for those who helped fund him, as well as his mercenaries. The third pillar was increased population. In the 1600s, Europe's population grew exponentially, and Spain saw an increase in its population, especially amongst the subjugated Castilian peasantry. And it was this group that was the workforce of Philip II. And the last pillar was that Spain were the masters of the Mediterranean. And two events here increased Spain's power in the 1500s. The first was the Spanish defeat of the Turks in 1571 at the Battle of Lepanto. After this event, Spain controlled the Mediterranean. And the second was the Iberian Union of 1580 between Spain and Portugal. Not only did Portugal come under control of Philip II, but also Portuguese colonies of Brazil and their trade ports in India and Africa became Spanish. The revolt in the Spanish Netherlands began as a political and religious movement against the forces of Philip II. Philip and his Catholic council were attempting to break down local Dutch autonomy and independence and create a Dutch state that was more directly controlled back from Catholic Madrid back in Spain. And these desires, the Spanish desires, fell upon the Dutch people, especially the artisan class. They detested and hated complete subordination to a hierarchical order. And the Dutch were far more tolerant and independent than any other states for their time. And additionally, many cities were made up of hardworking citizens who were loyal to Calvinism. So here we have both religious and uh, religious differences between Catholic Spain and, let's say, nobility or hardworking artisan class Calvinists, as well as subjugation versus independence, major terms that would define the Dutch revolt. When the attempt for direct control was started, William of Orange or William the Silent organized the Dutch mobility in opposition. A compromise was 
attempted in 1566, and that was eventually rejected by Philip II. And as a result of that, rebellions began as Dutch Protestants began destroying or removing religious icons from Catholic churches. As a response to those Catholic churches being damaged, in 1567, Philip II sent in the Duke of Alba to suppress the revolt. Over several thousand heretics were publicly executed, and in addition, Spain intended to have the Dutch pay a 10% increased sales tax for the damage incurred during their own revolt. Increased years of rebellion eventually led to an event known as the Spanish Fury. On November 4th of 1576, and lasting for four days, Spanish mercenaries went into Antwerp and killed about 7,000 people. Atrocities like this led to the union of 10 largely Catholic southern provinces with the mostly uh, Protestant seven northern states. It was known as the Pacification of Ghent, and it was known to have created a union against the, uh, the forces of Philip II of Spain. By 1579, however, the Union had cracked. The southern states formed the Union of Arras, and they made peace with Spain, while the northern sections, or the Dutch states, helped to create the Union of Utrecht. Three major events eventually led to the end of Spain's influence over the Dutch. And the first one was the entry of England into the conflict. The many Spanish battles that took place in the Low Countries eventually closed a lot of the lucrative markets, the very uh, wealthy markets that were attractive to the English who would sell their wool in those markets. And when those markets closed, the English were unable to sell their wool. So when the English crown was hit with the loss of revenue, it affected the English. So monetarily, economically, England might be looking to get involved in the conflict to help the Dutch out, not only as a religious conflict, but to help them out economically kind of hits, you know, they're hitting their, their wallet or their purse. They don't like the fact that the markets are closed, so perhaps they might be able to sway the war into the Dutch's favor. The second was the assassination of William of Orange in 1584, and that removed the most important military barrier against the Spanish. And with the fall of William, even more so the English might think it might be important to get involved. The third was the fall of Antwerp. It signaled a potential Catholic sweep in the Netherlands, and the English feared that the Spanish would eventually direct their eyes to England. If they got a hold of the Netherlands, that could be an easy positioning point right across the, uh, the North Sea, or the, I'm sorry, excuse me, the English Channel, uh, and heading directly towards England. Fourth and lastly, as the French began meddling in Spanish affairs in the Netherlands, Philip II signed an agreement with the French Guy family and the Catholic League, and then Spain eventually sent forces into France in 1590. The collective fronts, so fighting in France, fighting in Holland, and eventually a future war against England, overextended the Spanish. Facing French-English forces allowed the Dutch to expel Spanish soldiers in 1593, and although the Netherlands were recognized by both France and England in 1596, full recognition came only in 1648 with the signing of the Peace of Westphalia. Now, looking back at the Dutch Revolt and remembering our repetitive question that we're asking here during the podcast, were these wars of religion truly about religion? So when we're looking at the Dutch Revolt, the answer might be yet again, yes and no. Uh, if you're looking at it from the yes perspective, surely we have Catholics, Catholic Spain versus predominantly Calvinist Dutch. 
But we also have a couple of other factors here. We have economics, right? The English, for example, like just stated, the English are looking perhaps to get involved in the conflict because for them, their wallets are being hit. So economically, it might be in the best interest for England to come in and help push the Dutch towards a victory. If we're looking at it from a Dutch perspective, not only are they looking at it at the Spanish as their evil Catholic suppressors trying to push away local uh, independence amongst the Dutch and try to control uh, the Dutch from Spain. But in that sense, you also have more of a political play amongst the Dutch. If the Dutch were able to kick the Spanish out of Holland or the Netherlands, that would mean independence for the Dutch people and they can control their own lives. And if that means they can control themselves through the lens of a Calvinist independent state, then so be it. I think it's also important to, to note, and we'll even talk a little bit more about this during the Thirty Years' War, how important religion was to the lives of many people, not just the extremes, not just the, the pious individuals, but also the moderates. A lot of people saw religion as the basic formula that you kind of use to live your life day by day. But it, it, would be, it would be wrong of us not to see how other factors, in this case economics or politics, also played a major role within the Dutch Revolt. As the Netherlands were fighting against the Spanish for independence, and as we just noted, the English are looking to get involved, eventually the Dutch Revolt and the conflict between the Dutch and the Spanish are going to incorporate a side conflict between England and Spain. So let's look, look a little bit about in, uh, England and what they were going through before this eventual conflict with Spain. If we're looking at back during the period of the Reformation, if you guys remember specifically that of the Anglican Church, the man who made the Anglican Church through a divorce was Henry VIII. Well, Henry VIII had a son, and his name was Edward VI. So Edward eventually died, and Edward's half-sister, which would be Henry's first child from his first marriage, Mary I, took the throne in 1553. Mary I quickly and very shockingly reverted England back to a Catholic kingdom. She married Philip II, which was very unpopular for the English monarchy. And Mary, also known as, quote-unquote, Bloody Mary, executed English Protestant leaders, and this led to many others fleeing towards continental Europe. Elizabeth, so what would be Mary I's half-sister, Elizabeth succeeded her sister in 1558, and Elizabeth sought more of a middle route between the English Protestants and Catholics. She placed the unity of the country first and religious differences second. The Act of Uniformity in 1559 revised the common prayer book for all churches and mandated that all citizens, under penalty of a fine, attend church at least once a week, regardless of whatever sect you were. It didn't matter if you were Anglican, Catholic, Protestant, Lutheran, Calvinist, didn't matter. You had to go to church. The Act of Supremacy that same year repealed her sister Mary's anti-Protestant legislation and reestablished Elizabeth as the supreme governor over church and state. Lastly, the 39 Articles finalized in 1571 set forth the basic foundation of, moder of a moderately uh, Protestant church of England, what you would call today the Anglican Church. Elizabeth I's moderate approach to religion in her kingdom was met with radical religious fanaticism on both sides, both Catholic and Protestant. For the Catholics, 
Their extremists were led by Jesuits, and they attempted to remove Elizabeth from power in favor of a Catholic queen. The Protestant Puritans, who were looking to purify, that's where you're getting the term Puritans, is to purify, they were looking to purify the English church, the Church of England, from Catholic practices, such as practices and ceremonies going on during the Mass, or the way the officials dressed during the Mass. They also wanted to create a church that was independent of state control in favor of more local congregations that were governed by representative presbyteries, as they were called. And even more Puritans, even more extreme Puritans, wanted neither straight contr uh, state control or Presbyterian control. They wanted independent control. They wanted each church to be a law in of itself. And Elizabeth saw this group as subversive and demanded that these extremists either conform to the practices or face death or potentially exile. By 1588, England and Spain were on a course towards all-out war, a war that both actually wanted to avoid. However, Spain's actions, and even English actions, would tell you a different story. Uh, Spain's actions in the Netherlands and their massacres that took place, um, their show of might against the Ottomans at Lepanto, and even the Pope's excommunication of Elizabeth I, all of those actions led to England getting afraid and becoming more interested in international affairs and perhaps boosting up their defense for a future war. Elizabeth eventually went on to send Englishmen into the, uh, the Netherlands to help the Dutch in their fight against the Spanish. English pirate ships also preyed upon Spanish vessels arriving from the Americas. And Elizabeth also provided funds that openly assisted the Dutch efforts and Henry of Navarre for their battles against Spanish and French forces respectfully. And if those actions were not enough, in 1586, a plot was hatched to assassinate Elizabeth I and replace her with her Catholic cousin, Queen Mary of Scots, and have Spain invade England in order to restore the Catholic religion. The Babington Plot, as it was called, did not achieve any of those goals. The plot was discovered by the Queen's secretary, and the complotters were arrested and executed. Even the cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, was executed. The execution of a Catholic regent, so a Catholic princess or Catholic queen, was seen as a cautious belli. In Latin, that means a good reason for war by both Spain's Philip II and the Catholic Pope. And in May of 1588, the Spanish sent 130 ships towards the English islands, but faster English ships in a heavy storm, um, you might even liken it to that of a hurricane, uh, resulted in the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And although Spain did rebuild their fleet in the future, and they would go on to score impressive victories in the 1590s, they never were able to reassert their dominance after Philip II's death in 1598. And with the Spanish fall, France soon dominated the European continent, while England and the Dutch both went on to expand their colonial empires. The final war of the wars of religion that we'll be looking at today was the destructive Thirty Years' War. And two major causes of the Thirty Years' War was the political fragmentation of Germany and the deep religious division between Catholics and Protestants and Catholics and Calvinists. Germany at the time, what was known as the Holy Roman Empire, was made up of over 350 autonomous political states that fought to keep Germany divided. 
Each independent land had its own currency, had its own laws. Each ruler was supreme within their land. And this became nightmarish at the thought of trade or even potential unity as a German state. Additionally, as a result of the Peace of Osberg in 1555, each state had the right to determine and then freeze the official religion of that state, Catholic or Lutheran. But Calvinism at the time in 1555 was never addressed. It was never part of the Peace of Osberg. Both Catholics and Lutherans continued to take lands from one another even after the Peace of Osberg, and this only increased suspicion and tension between the two religions. Additionally, Calvinism began to grow in southern parts of Germany, but they're a third religion that's not legally supposed to be allowed in Germany. So how are they to be treated? Frederick III became the most well-known elector, a convert to Calvinism, and this growing religion was met with opposition from both Catholics and even Protestants. Moving into the 1600s, Jesuits were increasingly successful in winning back most of southern Germany for the Catholic cause. And in 1609, Maximilian, the Duke of Bavaria, organized the Catholic League Alliance that was meant to counter the Protestant Union Alliance of 1608. The Thirty Years' War is divided into four phases. And the first phase of the Thirty Years' War is known as the Bohemian Phase. In 1618, the new Catholic king of Bohemia, Ferdinand, came to the throne. He quickly set in motion a plan to restore Catholicism in Austria, Bohemia, and Hungary. Ferdinand revoked Protestant freedoms within Bohemia and eventually confiscated land from Protestant nobles and handed them over to his Catholic friends. The Protestants, upset of course that their religious freedom and their lands had been revoked from them, responded by throwing three of the king's advisors from windows of the royal palace in Prague. This act of defenestration, defenestration meaning to throw something out of a window, was the first shots that were fired in the conflict known as the Thirty Years' War. If you've ever had an opportunity to read some of the primary sources that tell us about the defenestration act that took place in Prague, it, it is funny to read primary sources uh, both Catholic primary sources and then that of the Protestants to get a different perspective on how a similar event can be viewed so differently. From the Catholic perspective, the three men that were thrown out of the window, and it's commonly known that the three men that did get launched out of the window, all three of the men survived, uh, which then led to stories about their survival. For the Catholics and the primary sources, it seems that for some of them, an angel came down from heaven and it was an angel that kind of uh, flew underneath the bodies of the men that were hurled out of the window and using their uh, angelic wings were able to guide the people down to the floor. And that's what saved them, an intervention from God. And, and looking at it through a Catholic lens or religious lens, well, the Catholics are, are trying to make their argument seem to be correct, that our religion is the best because these men survived, they're Catholics, and so God helped them out. From the Protestant perspective, however, um, it's not an intervention from God. In some of their primary sources, they're saying that when these men were launched out of the window, the only thing that saved them was that they fell in a hump of crap, animal crap, and uh, what would have been around like a moat that was filled with a bunch of waste, of animal waste. And it was only that that saved them. Really interesting to see how events eventually are used as propaganda, religiously in this perspective, to try to show how the Catholics would have seen an event versus that of the Protestants. 
One year following the act of defenestration, the Calvinist Bohemians definitively declared the Calvinist elector Palatinate Frederick V as their king. This set the sides for war. Frederick V and his Protestants versus Catholic Ferdinand and his allies of Spain, Maximilian of Bavaria, and the Lutheran John George I of Saxony. Wait, what? Lutheran? A Lutheran fighting for the Catholic side? Well, two things need to be noted here. First, John George of Saxony would be able to expand his own territory by joining the surely victorious side of the Catholics. And second, conflicts between Lutherans and Calvinists also existed during the wars of religion. There was not a call for general universal Protestantism. The example of John George I of Saxony joining the Catholic side is just one example of how politics and greed, not solely religion, were both causes and motivations for the wars of religion. In 1620, Ferdinand's army defeated Frederick V and his troops at the Battle of White Mountain. By 1622, Bohemia was once again Catholic. The second phase of the Thirty Years' War was known as the Dutch Phase. In 1626, the Danish Lutheran King Christian IV looked to expand Danish influence into Germany. However, this expansion was pushed back by Maximilian of Bavaria. After Maximilian, Emperor Ferdinand put his trust in Albert of Wallenstein. Albert pushed successfully into Denmark, and this success allowed Ferdinand the ability to issue the Edict of Restitution in 1629. The Edict called for the following. First, it reaffirmed the illegality of Calvinism in Germany, and two, it ordered that all Catholic lands taken by Lutherans since 1522 be returned. But was this perhaps an opportunity to rid Germany of Lutheranism gone wrong? If Catholics had truly wanted a war of religion against their enemies of Calvinism and Lutheranism, it is interesting that the Catholics wanted the Edict of Restitution to have their lands returned. If, in fact, religion was a true motivating factor of the war, well, then why did Catholics not target Protestantism for its complete removal? Perhaps Catholics were most interested in getting their land, in that case, value, right? Because with land comes value, location, 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 was most important, and maybe religion, in this case, of secondary importance. The third phase of the Thirty Years' War was known as the Swedish phase, and it began with the Swedish king Gustavus Adolphus II entering the conflict. Gustavus Adolphus was supported by major players in this conflict. First, the Dutch, Second, the electors of Saxony and Brandenburg, but most importantly, in a bizarre enough way, third, Catholic France. The French minister, Cardinal Richelieu, had only the idea of the protection of France in mind and not religion, fearing France's encirclement by Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs. Richelieu wanted Gustavus Adolphus to wreak havoc in Germany, keeping the Habsburg bogged down in a constant war. This would drive the Spanish and the Austrian Habsburgs away from the French border and towards the heart of Germany. Although a brilliant master of warfare and tactician, Gustavus Adolphus was killed by Wallenstein in 1632. Consequently, Ferdinand, afraid of Wallenstein's growing independent power, had Wallenstein assassinated in 1634. Here is yet another example of power politics at play during what is to be a religious conflict. The French entered the war in 1635, or what became known as the Terrible Year. This began the fourth phase of the Thirty Years' War, also known as the French or the International Phase. 
In this phase, Spanish, Swedish, and French forces utterly destroyed Germany. Around 20 to 30% of the German population was killed, numbers not seen since the Black Death. Starvation and the plague ravaged Germany, and some even turned towards cannibalism to push off starvation. One of the great accounts of what took place during 1635, and even years before and years after, comes from a German farmer and cobbler named Hans Herbelich. Hans worked a couple miles north of the city of Ulm, and during the years from 1618 and till his death, I believe in 1677, he chronicled his memoir, his journey through the years of the Thirty Years' War, and it's compiled mostly of his own experiences as well as experiences from others as he's interviewed and talked to others during this war. And what you get from it is really a class perspective. Here we have Hans as a farmer, a common man, and what people common people are oftentimes having to endure during this horrible, horrible crisis. And we read exactly from his own words what he, his wife, had to suffer as far as hunger, exile, food shortages. And this eventually resulted, unfortunately, in his family losing seven children. In this first primary source that comes from 1635, Hans is going to talk about the shortage of certain types of things, such as salt, wheat, at the local city and then what the consequences of that were. He says, quote, during this year, 1635, we experienced and endured a great deal of scarcity because of the war and the plague of which many thousands died and starved to death. I have recounted above the main events of the war. The shortage was so great at Ulm, grain rose to 13 florin, 13 florin meaning let's say the equivalent of let's say $13. And then up to 16, 17, even 20 florin. Then no grain came into the municipal granary at all, for the bakers secretly bought it all up. Rye cost 12 florin, peas 15 florin, oats 8 florin, fat and salt, the cost the same. Between 9 and 12 batson per pound and metzen, and a metzen of salt came very dear. At Valdensetten, in Ulm, metzen of salt cost 1 florin, a price I myself paid, as I can attest with tongue and pen, and with this chronicle. There was such terrible suffering, so bad I cannot describe it. From this, death and starvation arose, an evil worse than all other evils, namely a pestilence, and many thousands of persons died of hunger, war, and plague. The hunger, you see, drove many poor folk to eat nasty and disgusting things, indeed all sorts of improper things, such as dogs and cats, mice and dead cattle and horse flesh, and the flesh from dead carcasses thrown away by the renderer. Horse, dog, and other animals was taken away. Indeed, people quarreled over it and thought it was fine stuff. People were also glad to eat all sorts of plants from the field, such as thistles, needles, and other plants. Every kind of plant was favored, for hunger is a fine cook, as the proverb says. From this hunger, a great pestilence and mortality arose, killing many thousand persons. Dr. Conrad Dietrich of Ohm wrote in his New Year's ser uh, sermon of 1635 that at Ohm more than 15,000 persons died and were carried out of the city. Amongst them, 5,672 poor folk and beggars, 4,033 peasants and strangers, and 168 foundlings. Foundlings are uh, children that are given to foundling homes or are given up for basic, let's say, adoption. They're given to the city. 
continuing on with his quote, on many days, 150, 160, even 170 at most were carried out. Wasn't that terrible? Yes. I believe it was the evil of all evils, for I have not only heard about it, but I saw it and heard it with my own eyes and ears, end quote. The devastation the Thirty Years' War took on German territory and farms eventually resulted in there being shortage of food, the consequences of the shortage of food leading to death and hunger. And as we read, people going as far as eating rotting carcasses on the side of the road, even eating things like trees, parts, thistles, needles, anything they could find to try to eat. That wasn't the extreme. People in Germany even turned towards cannibalism. And Hans relates that in 1638 in the city of Bresich. He says, quote, Almost all the dogs and cats in the city were eaten, and some thousands of horses, cattle, oxen, calves, and sheep were also eaten. On November 24th, a captured soldier died in the jail. And when the provost went to bury him, he found that the other prisoners had taken his body, cut it up, and eaten it. The prisoners in the jail made holes in the walls with their fingers so they could partake in it. Two dead men in the burying grounds were carved up and the entrails were extracted and eaten. Three children were eaten in one day. The soldiers promised a pie maker's son a piece of bread if he would come into the barracks. When he entered, they butchered him and ate him. On December 10th, in the Fleischerhalden alone, eight prominent citizens lost children, probably eaten, because nobody knew where they had gone to. This doesn't count the strangers and beggars children of whom nobody knew anything. In the square alone, 10 deaths occurred, not counting those found in the manure piles or in the alleys. On December 12th, another soldier died in the jail. And when the provost went to bury him, the others lying about fell upon the body, ripping into it with their teeth and ate the corpse raw, end quote. what extremes the French or international phase has pushed the German people to? What devastation has cost the German people as far as their land and their food source to the point where Germans are going to the lengths of cannibalism to try to survive? And reading documents like this, primary sources like this, you start to understand why the German people looking back to that intro that we had back in the 1960s when that poll question was asked on what devastating event was the most uh, in German history, why people would select the 30 years war, the savagery that took place, the starvation. I can imagine a, a young German child, perhaps maybe even a hundred years later, let's say in the, the 16 or 1730s, sitting down to eat dinner and there being mostly vegetables, let's say for a commoner, and the child saying, I don't want to eat my vegetables. I don't, I don't want to eat my vegetables. I eat, I hate them. And the parents saying, you have to eat your vegetables. That's, that's what we have. There's, there's nothing else that we have. We don't have meat. We don't have a vast delight. No, I won't eat my vegetables. And perhaps daddy digging into a little of the German history and say, you don't want to eat your vegetables. Let me tell you a little bedtime story. Let me tell you a little bedtime story about starvation 
what people, our people did just a hundred years ago. And maybe you might rethink about eating your vegetables. Maybe. Not only was it primary sources like this, but also poetry that became uh, effective in affecting the German people and their mindset and why the 30 years war weighs so heavily upon them. Um, one poet in particular, his name is Andreas Greifius, wrote two poems that really details the slaughter. And, and these poems, much like books that are going to be passed on, but the poems are part of German culture. And these poems will be passed on from generation to generation. And so as one generation recounts it, they can kind of look back and think back at the nastiness of 100 years ago, or perhaps 200 years ago, and then weigh what they're going through in the 1700s or the 1800s, or the 1900s, based upon what the German culture has experienced, what their writing has experienced, what the sorrow has been, what their history has been. And then the first poem is called All is Vanity. And here, and Andreas is talking about the greatness of man, what man can build, but also what man can destroy. And in the middle of the Thirty Years' War, this is around 1613, uh, what man can destroy. He says, quote, You will see wherever you look, only vanity on this earth. What one man builds today, another tears down tomorrow. Where now cities stand, a meadow will be, upon which a shepherd's child will play with the herds. What now blooms in magnificence will soon be tread asunder. What today pounds with defiance, tomorrow is ash and bone. There is nothing which is eternal, neither ore nor marble. Now fortune smiles upon us, but soon troubles will thunder. The fame of great deeds must pass like a drum. Why should the game of time, the simple human persist? Oh, what is all of this? that we hold to be exquisite, but wicked vanities as shadow, dust, and wind, a meadow flower which one can find no more, yet not a single man wants to contemplate what is eternal." End quote. In the second poem, Tears of the Fatherland, Andreas Greifius, I think, makes a stronger connection to what Hans Herbele was attempting to detail in his memoirs, a lot of the suffering, the death that both men experienced during the time. In the Tears of the Fatherland, he says, quote, full now, yea, more than full, behold our devastation, the frantic drumbeat, the brazen horde, the thundering siege gun, the blood slick sword, devour all diligence and sweat and careful preparation. The church is overthrown, our mighty men are slain, the town hall lies in dust, our towers burned, virgins are violated, and everywhere we turn, our fire, plague, and death to pierce us, heart and brain. Down walls and through the towns run always fresh-spilled blood. For eighteen summers now, our rivers yearly flood. Near choked with corpses, has pushed slowly, slowly on. But nothing I will say of one thing worse, I know, than death, more grim than plague or fire or hunger's woe, those pillaged souls from whom even hope of heaven is gone." End quote. Amazing to hear that even though Gryphius has witnessed the destruction, devastation of towns, violation of people, fire and plague and death, noting 18 summers in a row that bodies and corpses are flowing in rivers, the one thing that he feels perhaps most sad about is that the people who have died 
don't even have hope of going to heaven. And not only have they gone through the hell of life here on earth, but there's probably no answer even above. That's how devastating this time period was. In 1648, hostilities of the Thirty Years' War ended with the signing of the Treaty of Westphalia. The treaty did four things. First, it stopped the Pope from meddling in the affairs of the Holy Roman Empire. Second, it rescinded the Edict of Restitution of 1629. If we remember correctly, the Edict of Restitution was implemented by Ferdinand during the Danish phase. He was hoping that all the lands that had been taken by Lutherans after 1522 would be given back to the Catholic Church. Well, now that the Edict of Restitution was rescinded, the land that was once taken by the Lutherans, given back to the Catholic Church, will be given back to the Lutherans. Third, the Treaty of Westphalia reasserted the Peace of Augsburg. That stated that the rulers of the German lands, all these little principalities, little princes uh, that existed in the Holy Roman Empire, that they determine the religion of their land. And fourth and finally, Calvinism was written into the Peace of Augsburg. So in 1555, when the Peace of Augsburg was signed, only two religions were allowed to coexist in, well, I shouldn't say coexist, were allowed to exist. Because if they coexisted and they got along, then we wouldn't be at this point in history, right? In um, 1555, a German prince could determine the land, the religion of their land by choosing either Catholicism or Lutheranism. Well, after 30 years of destruction, 30 years of death and starvation and murder, you finally have Calvinism that is written into the Peace of Augsburg. So one of our major questions that we started off with at the beginning of this podcast was, Does is the end result of the 30 years war really worth all the casualties the years of devastation, the murder, and the death? And I think clearly the answer is no. If the one major factor, the one of the biggest questions going into the 30 Years' War was, what do we do with Calvinism? Could a German prince select Cal uh, Calvinism? Do they only have the right to select Catholicism and Lutheranism? And you have to go through 30 years of slaughter, 30 years of starvation, 30 years of murder to do one major thing in that, in that uh, case, to write Calvinism into the Peace of Augsburg, I think clearly your answer here is absolutely not, that the end result is not worth the devastation that the Thirty Years' War caused. And once again, looking at our reoccurring question throughout the podcast, was the were the wars of religion truly about religion? Well, let's take a look in this case towards the Thirty Years' War. I think we have plenty of evidence here that would support the idea that, no, this is not just a war of religion. Because once again, if it was a war of religion, it would be one religion against another, or in this case, in the Thirty Years' War, against a third. So all three of these religions would be targeting each other as the pure enemy, uh, that there would not be any uh, unifying between the religions that it would just be purely a religious war. And I think we have plenty of evidence here for the Thirty Years' War that shows us that this is not true. Uh, in the Bohemian phase, we have John, John George of Saxony, who himself was a Lutheran. He decided to join the Catholic side because he was going to be able to get a huge amount of land because he knew, he knew overall that Ferdinand, with the amount of land and money and wealth, that Bohemia and Austria provided for Ferdinand that there would be no way that Frederick V would be victorious. 
So John George of Saxony, him being a, a Lutheran, said, no, I'm joining the winning side. He didn't do it because of his religion. He did it because of potential for greed and the ability to get money out of it and land out of it. Um, you also have eventually going into the Danish phase, looking at the Edict of Restitution. I think this is another major point to look at. If the Catholics were most interested in religious war, then they would not just want their lands back, of which the Edict of Restitution, the main idea coming out of the Edict of Restitution was that the Catholics get their lands back. If this was truly a war of religion, the Catholics would have cared a little bit less about their land and would have cared more about the souls of the people that Lutherans were tarnishing and maybe try to focus on getting rid of Lutheranism, converting or reconverting those Lutherans back to the Christian church. But it seems to be that the Catholic church in that case, in the Eid of Restitution, is also looking more at potential economic factors, getting their lands, their wealth back, and not necessarily a religious conversion of the once Christian, now Lutheran uh, brothers. For the third phase of the, uh, the Thirty Years' War, we have a lot of backstabbing that are going on. Ferdinand uh, is eventually is going to kill Wallenstein. He gets assassinated in 1634. Um, you have power play politics here. Ferdinand realized how powerful Wallenstein was becoming and didn't want a rival that might uh, surpass him as far as importance in the empire. And who knows? People might join on Wallenstein's side. And next you know, Ferdinand's kind of the outside emperor of Germany. If we're looking at it from the French phase or the international phase, the French are interested in protecting their borders. That's why you have Catholic French, a Catholic French government that is providing money and weapons and supplies to a Lutheran Swede, Gustavus Adolphus, and for him to come into Germany and wreak havoc in both the Swedish and the French and international phase. France is afraid. They're afraid that the Habsburgs of Spain and Austria the Spanish, uh, Spanish Habsburgs to the French southern section, as well as the Austrian Habsburgs to the east, that if the Habsburgs come through, we're talking about Ferdinand, uh, he's being an, an Austrian, a Bohemian, coming through Germany, getting closer and closer to the French border, that means that the French could potentially be surrounded by cousins, Spanish Habsburgs and Austrian Habsburgs. So France is not concerned about a religious war or else they would be fighting on the side of Spanish Catholics and Bohemian Catholics and Austrian Catholics. But France, even though they are a Catholic nation, they're most interested in protecting their border and hence they will pay Lutherans, specifically Gustavus Adolphus, the king of Sweden, to come in and destroy Germany and keep the fight in Germany, kind of mix it up and keep it in Germany. Because if, if the fight is in Germany, that means that the Habsburgs are away from the French border and the French can kind of breathe. The religious tension of the early 16th century Reformation in Europe slowly evolved into a full-scale conflict by the end of the 1500s through to the mid-1600s. In France, the French crown's battle for continual political power quickly escalated into civil war between French Calvinists and French Catholics, which witnessed countless wars, finally resulting in the Edict of Nantes that provided religious freedoms to the French Calvinists. In the Spanish Netherlands, the Dutch, looking to free themselves from Spanish rule, endured a religious independence movement that finally proved successful with the arrival of the English and the English victory over the Spanish Armada. Finally, within the Holy Roman German Empire, the Peace of Augsburg in 1555 did little to deal with deep religious division between Catholics, 
Lutherans, and Calvinists. As in previous religious wars of the time period, alliances were made in preparation for coming conflict. Between 1618 and 1648, the Thirty Years' War raged amongst four different phases, resulting in the devastation of Germany and the loss of upwards of 30% of its population. In 1648, the signing of the Peace of Westphalia ended the last of the religious wars. Were these conflicts truly wars of religion? Through each war, the cause of religion was often blurred with that of political gain or economic advancement. Religion was indeed the underlying cause of the conflicts, but as the German-American historian Ayo Horborn states in his History of Modern Germany, the Reformation, quote, every political action was publicly cloaked in religious terms, but religion seemed to be used more and more to rationalize actions motivated by secular interests, end quote. 